Welcome to the Not A Mommy Yet podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Fay. I started the Not A Mommy Yet blog and this podcast because I've always known I want to be a parent one day, and you might be listening because you feel the same. You may have also heard people with kids say things like, I wish I had known this before I had kids, or I wish I had done that. Hearing those comments made me think about the parts of my life I want to spend more time focusing on before I have kids in ways that will benefit me as a parent. So I started a list of people who can teach me about health, money, relationships, psychology, and more, and started interviewing them, and this podcast was born. Whether you plan to have kids or not, I think you'll find something interesting in this podcast for you. I hope you enjoy, subscribe, and maybe even share it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. Well, thank you guys so much for being on the Not A Mommy Up podcast today. I'm really excited to be speaking with both of you. Um, I wanted you on the podcast because I've been following your site um, for a while, and I love all of the content you're putting out there to help caregivers, in your words, raise children who are brave, informed, and thoughtful about race. Um, I'm actually starting to educate myself about my intersecting identities. I'm white. I was born into a wealthy family. I'm a cisgender female. I'm straight and was culturally raised Jewish. So learning how these identities interact with societal power structures and whether I want that intersection to happen or not. So it's been really important to learn about the power that I hold because of my um, like white racial identity and to look to outlets such as Embrace Race to learn how to productively use that to help break down the culture um, and systems rooted in racism and white supremacy. So um, all of that being said, I think we all have different starting points about understanding race in general and our own race specifically. And I think Embrace Race does a really great job at meeting people where they are and really giving them the tools to learn um, how to be better at working toward racial equity and understanding. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. Do you want to be our manager? <laughs> you are a marketer, maybe. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. Obviously, you've done a lot of work on yourself, and um, I, I have to say that I just love the whole premise of your show, too. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we'll definitely yeah, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I just wanted to start off um, asking you both to kind of tell in your own words what inspired you to start Embrace Race. So this is M- Melissa, obviously, talking. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is Melissa. Um, well, racism, you know, is part of it, but it really was that maybe unlike you, you know, we had to have kids to realize um, or just to be affected um, and realize, you know, that we that it was still hard, you know, because we're two adults now who were raised, in, in my case, I'm uh, biracial, black, white, um, was raised by immigrant parents who didn't talk a lot about race, and uh, that was challenging, and when we had kids of our own, and Andrew's African-American, um, when we had kids of our own, it, even though professionally and personally we had been really thoughtful about race and, you, you know, in, in the work that we've done, um, in the uh, struggles that we've had individually and the things we think about, enjoy talking, all of that, um, we thought, gosh, if we're having a hard time, parenting around these issues just because 
so emotionally fraught um, when it's your kids, imagine how other parents who are less informed about it are feeling it. And in fact, those are the people our kids are encountering every day as well, like those, those other kids and other families. So that was really the, um, the inspiration. And, and I guess more specifically, we started a, we were on a diversity committee in, in one of our kids' um, preschool, and we had a great group there and started a parenting and race um, a group that we met with with other parents there. We all started it together, and it was really powerful and helpful. And again, it wasn't one of these moments of, oh, that's how I do it. It was more of just having the community and feeling that reminding yourself something that you know intellectually but can forget emotionally, which is which just happens in parenting in general. Um, when there are these stressors, you can say, oh, gosh, I'm just, I suck at this, you know? Mm-hmm. But when you hear all the other parents, you realize, oh, this is not really about me. This is, this is systems. And I knew that, but I feel that. And working and talking in, in community and trying to do something about it together um, is really, not only works better, but um, is a part of our self-care as parents, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, the, the thing I would add to that is that, you know, as a, I've been doing race work my whole career, right? So research and advocacy work, and, and I really do think about um, you know, what, what things might look like if we took another one or two huge steps forward. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily things are perfect, but what would our multiracial democracy look like if racial inequities were much less severe, racial polarization much much less severe, right? The racial divide much less severe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that any path forward um, that does not account for how we are raising our children mm-hmm. uh, is, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense, right? Not to, to think about that. So how children uh, grow up thinking about race, racial identity, the quote-unquote racial other, the degree to which they other people along the lines of race, ethnicity, you know, nationality, immigrant status, all of those sorts of things, um, will obviously matter a huge deal. I saw, it wasn't so long ago that Barack Obama, you know, gave a talk, a speech, um, an address at Nelson Mandela's funeral, uh, and he talks about how, you know, every generation has the opportunity to remake the world, um, and, you know, I would amend that slightly to say every generation does remake the world, right? Every generation remakes the world. The question is how? What does that look like? Um, and a big part of that is what kind of sensibilities, analysis, et cetera, what kind of concerns do they bring uh, to the work that they collectively do and that we collectively do? So, yeah, that's a, you know, as a system's, dynamicists say a high leverage point how children think about things and how we collectively think about things knowing that much of the answer to that question is you know rooted in childhood experiences and childhood learning um so that's you know ditto to everything melissa said and we're trying to do something we think will create a better future 
Yeah, I mean, it definitely, you brought up Nelson Mandela, it reminds me of that quote from Long Walk to Freedom that no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion, and people must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. Um, and so I definitely agree that it comes, you know, children are like a blank slate and everything that we teach them or expose them to kind of impacts that, um, experience for them. And right now race does, is really dividing our country. And, um, what's great about your platform is you're just helping people gain a better understanding of how to teach those future generations to like embrace the differences that make us unique and respect each other regardless of those differences. Um, so I think you guys are come are like growing and present at a really important time in our country for, for sure. Um, yeah. Um, so I wanted to go through a few terms, you know, before we kind of continue our conversation that I think are important just to clarify and discuss. And if there are any that you wanted to add to this list, that'd be great. But the first one is, um, race simply, how do you guys kind of define race for yourselves? Um, yeah, these are great questions. I don't, uh, everything for me requires like a long conversation, so I'll try anyway. <laughs> but, um, race is a, you know, it's a social construct created to divide people and, uh, and for profit. And, um, it nevertheless has, uh, affects us, affects sort of how various privileges material and otherwise um, <clears throat> accrue to us as, as people of certain racial identities so uh, and different racial identities. So that's what, that's what race is. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I tell my kids a made-up thing that actually has an effect and that doesn't make any sense because that's another part of it. It doesn't actually, it's not logical. It doesn't really hold up to logic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, so clearly, right, there's this phenotypical stuff, right? Skin color and hair texture and, um, you know, uh, all of that, uh, the way people look, right? So there's something around that. And then there's something about what people think of all of that means, mm -hmm. right? So I think race is sort of the association between those, those things, right? So clearly people look different. You know, there are range of skin colors, there's a range of, you know, nose shapes and, you know, eye shapes and color, you know, all of those things, hair, all of that stuff, I mean, so that's real. And they do, um, broadly speaking, tend to cluster, right? So people with this color skin tend to have that kind of hair and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. the, the, uh, and that's all fine. The, the interesting thing is, right, when we, A, make... Uh, there are sort of beliefs that associate those, that cluster of phenotypical characteristics with the internal characteristics, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, you know, people who like, look like that are smart or not, or lazy or not, or, um, you know, criminally inclined or not, or all of these sorts of things. So A is, what is that cluster of associations? And what is it that makes these phenotypical things associated with that cluster of, right, internal kind of characteristics. Um, that's what we need to tease apart. Yeah. So I'm doing race, you know, uh, wouldn't be necessarily about, you know, we're all blended. I mean, this is how a lot of people think about it, right? So we're 
you know, lots of sort of quote-unquote intermixing so that we all look alike, right? Um, but it's not necessarily that, right? It's disassociating how we look from assumptions about who we are fundamentally. Right. You know, what kind of characteristics we bring. That's, that's I think, what undoing race would mean. Yeah, to start looking past just what we look on the outside. I love that. Yeah. Um, so now, no matter how a person might identify, especially if that might be, um, you know, as a Democrat or left-leaning, um, they might believe that they're not racist because they aren't explicitly racist, maybe through their words or actions. But I know that that's not true because there are ways a person can be implicitly racist. So... I wanted to kind of go through those two terms of explicit racism and implicit racism and maybe an example of each from your guys' perspective. Sure. So this is um, actually a little bit tricky because I think there's a, um, a fair bit of confusion. On one hand, you know, you could say explicit racism is, um, you know, uh, these sort of associations that we that we hold, that we know that we, know we hold, right? So associations about someone based on their perceived racial identity or assumptions, beliefs about someone based on their explicit, uh, sorry, on their um, perceived racial identity that we know we hold, right? So, you know, I think, gosh, I think black people are better athletes, or I think they run faster, or I think, you know, um, gosh, look at the NBA, right? The NBA is, you know, overwhelmingly black. black. Black people are just better basketball players, right? That's just true because they jump higher and they run faster. So that would be explicit. Mm-hmm. Uh, implicit would be, you know, a belief I hold that I'm perhaps not aware of, right? That I'm not aware that I hold. So, you know, if, um, you know, if if I'm a doctor and I'm treating a patient, and the question is, what, um, you know, what, what, how, how should the, how should I instruct the patient to deal with the problem that brought him or her to the hospital, right? Mm-hmm. It's just about, you know, they're in routes to go there, I could give the person medication, um, or I could say, well, you know, the, the best route would be, you know, if you could eat a certain way, right? So the, the diet exercise route, right? Right. You can deal with this problem. You, you're pre-diabetic. You can deal with your uh, pre with this with your you know borderline high blood sugar count by you know through discipline. You're going to eat better. You know that means salads. It means whatever it means. And you're going to exercise more. That means walking, biking, whatever. Or I can give you some medication that will help, but it does have some side effects. You could, I mean, we know, you know, that particular case is a hypothetical, but you, we know that doctors, in fact, are inclined to give different kinds of, right, and lean towards different instructions, depending on their assumptions about the likelihood of the person carrying it out. And those assumptions are themselves rooted largely in race and, and class, mm-hmm. right, assumptions. So, you know, we assume that some people will be disciplined enough, right? We mm-hmm. assume that some people, you know, understand the instructions in the first place. Um, and the doctor who makes, you know, fairly systematic judgments based largely on race and class may well not be aware that she does that, right? She right. thinks that she's reading the person in front of her and making an educated guess without necessarily knowing that, well, actually, you know what? You tend to tell black people to take the medication because you assume they don't have the discipline to take care of themselves, right? right? Or people who are less educated formally, 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and of course there's a big overlap between those two. Um, so the only other, when I say there's some confusion, I think in the research on this, um, sometimes people think that, a lot of people think that implicit racism isn't necessarily racism that we're not aware of or attitudes we're not aware of, but it's actually about attitudes we won't express, but we're aware of. Right. Right? Which is a very different thing. Um, <clears throat> so I won't get into that, but I think there is that sort of confusion about what we exactly mean by implicit. Right. And so would microaggressions fall under implicit racism? Would you um, say? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, you certainly, sure, I would say so. And you're going to say something else because you, you're not aware. You might say, you might, for example, just, um, you know, say you, you live in a diverse place and you find yourself only dating people who look like you. Mm-hmm. You know, is that, you know, there, there are all sorts of reasons that that could be true. Um, but the one people are interested willing to think about sometimes is, oh, I actually think beautiful people look more like me, you know? Right. Um, so, so, so that's, I mean, I guess I'm not answering your microaggressions. I mean, I think, I think people often assume that microaggressions, um, emerge from implicit bias, right? There's also often that assumption, but it's not necessarily true in the way those terms I think are defined by the social scientists who study them. Um, and I, but I, I think that the key thing here, I think implicit bias um, and the notion of implicit bias can be used, has been used, I think, and I say this as someone who's you know, written and talks about implicit bias quite a bit, I think part of the reason implicit bias is in vogue um, is precisely because it feels more palatable, right? It feels mm-hmm. more palatable to, to, you know, to an audience member to be told you probably have these biases and you're a good person. You don't need this, right? Mm-hmm. It's simply, this is, you're, you're not a bad person, you're a human being, right? And so that's, as opposed to explicit bias, where you're saying, look, you have these racial, racist attitudes, you know you have them, and the way we've defined racism, right, the whole sort of ideology around racism is such that um, people feel this is a, understood to be a character flaw, Right? right. Like in the way we talk about it, when, you know, the second George Bush asked to reflect on the lowest moment of his uh, presidency, he said it was when Kanye West said I was a racist. Right? This is someone who, you know, presided over the beginning of two world wars and Hurricane Katrina and 9 11. And he said the lowest moment of his presidency was when Kanye West said that he was a racist. Right? I mean, the, I think we can only understand the power of that. Um, by understanding that people think that that is, you know, a, a profound character statement mm-hmm. to say that one is a racist. Um, and I think to ease the sort of pang of that, um, you know, or implicit bias has been part, the appeal to implicit bias has been part a response to the pang of that, or right? wanting to mitigate the sort of, um, yeah, the, the, the pain of that quote-unquote accusation. Mm-hmm. But Andrew, you're not saying that um, it was real. Oh, no, no, it's like the bias is very real. Yeah. yeah, it's very real. But if you listen to 
right? If he looks at all the books, you know, all the presentations, all the YouTube videos, etc., on implicit implicit bias, and they almost lack thereof um, uh, lack of attention to explicit bias, except right to some degree now in the context of Trump and his supporters. That's usually usually where you hear it. Or let me put it this way: until Trump's campaign. In the previous five years, let's say, you would think that the only biases we had were implicit biases, right? And I think that's actually dishonest. I think that many of us, most, I actually think probably all of us, but certainly many of us, if we were honest, would acknowledge that there are times you not only harbor biases, but are well aware of them. Yeah. Right? Not only along rounds, but gender, class, age, you know, weight, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And to pretend that the biases we have are hidden from us is just is simply not true, but perhaps it makes us feel a little bit better. Right. Um, so it kind of feels like microaggressions, even if they could come out kind of unknowingly, they're more explicit than implicit. Well, they can be both. Yeah, okay. They can be both, right? It's, um, certainly you could commit what's called a microaggression and be aware that you're doing it. Right. Right. Or you could be not aware that you're doing it. Right. Little things like, you know, if I meet someone and I extend my hand uh, to, to, to shake for mm-hmm. a sh- and the person ignores it, or, the, or more likely the person shakes, and this is something I actually have noticed, the person shakes my hand and then wipes his own. Oh. Right? Yeah. yeah. No, wipes, wipes his own hand after shaking mine on his pamphlet or something. Yeah. Um, now, some people do that regardless, because, you know, whatever, fair germ, whatever that is. Yeah. But I'm quite sure that some people do that based on the hand that was just shaken. Yeah. Right? And whether or not the person, I think that is, would commonly be called a microaggression, but the person may or may not know, right, that, uh, may not be aware that he, she does it with reference to certain identities and not others. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, now to go a bit broader, um, racism is obviously built into the systems of our communities, governments, laws, etc. Um, can you kind of differentiate between institutional and individual racism with some examples? Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess Institutional, I think of, um, you know, standardized tests, say, mm-hmm. that have been proven to correlate with um, um, economic status and not really to show, same with GREs, to SAP GREs, but yeah, to all of them, really, to um, not really to be a good indicator of how well someone will do in school the way grades and recommendations are. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that's a thing that still determines, um, you know, who gets the most opportunities, you know, gets to go to the better schools. Or if you look back at uh, or something like sort of relatedly, GPA is also uh, pretty important. But one thing Andrew in his research many years ago taught me was about how when they're waiting people to go into college or whatever, they, um, they count, you know, their grade point average and, and APs give you an extra point or whatever, like a five out of four. Right. If you got an A, 
And um, the issue is that in uh, black and brown neighborhoods in particular, the offering, some places don't even offer APs. Right. So you have no opportunity to show that you can compete at that level. And those that do have APs don't nearly have as many. I mean, the amounts are ridiculous if you go to sort of an affluent school versus a not affluent. So right there, you just, you know, you're down before you even start. Right. That's an institutional example. And then individual. Yeah. No, and just to elaborate on that just a little bit, I mean, that um, resource came from, I think, of 1997 or 1998 California data. Mm-hmm. And and they were looking, for example, at UCLA and admissions to UCLA that year. And the average GPA of students accepted to UCLA that year was 4.25 right, on a 4 scale. Right. So, you know, if you go to a school <laughs> where you don't get a 4 yeah, because there aren't, you know, honors courses, then you literally could not do as well as the average student admitted to UCLA in that year. Um, yeah, and then in and, addition and to think, that, if, if you don't take, if you take even just, like, a couple APs and you have a 3 that's really a 4 so you're, like, still ahead of the game, and you could have such a lower average in reality. Right. And so that's yeah, right. an additional kind of... Right, you're in the I have a friend who went to, you know, she's 40 years old now. She's a, a twin. Mm-hmm. And she and her twin went to International Baccalaureate School. And they were co-valedictorians and graduated with 5.25 GPAs. Wow. Right? Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. So I don't know how that happens, how you go over five, but literally she had a 5.25 GPA. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you're gonna count, yeah. So that's yeah. clear. And the other thing, you know, the just to underline this point, right? So if you think about, you know, the UCLA admissions officers or the, you know, the principals and teachers at California schools that year, you know, none of the that system can would produce problematic results, right? Regardless of the feeling of anybody in it, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that we have, you know, significant racial segregation in California, which means that black and brown kids tend to be in schools that don't have those opportunities and white and Asian kids tend to be in student in schools that do, you know, that that system grinds its way to its results quite apart from the feelings or preferences of individuals in it, right? Mm-hmm. Or understanding, bigger problem. Or understanding. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so individual racism, you know, typically people mean, um, yeah, people think of it as a, uh, yeah, a hearts and minds thing, right? Mm-hmm. Hearts and minds, racial attitudes, you know, implicit or explicit bias, you know, contained in the mind of, uh, of us as individuals. Um, and, and again, the point of institutional racism, I think, is that it can uh, have it, it has its effects regardless of the makeup of the individuals in it, except insofar as the individuals permit the system to work its results without intervention, right? Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, as a white woman, it's not any responsibility but my own to understand the history of racism in this country and how it affects people of color every day. So I can imagine for anyone, it's hard to know kind of where to start. 
So even as the journey becomes my own, um, and the reason why I want to talk to you guys today was to ask you, where would you say is a great place to start? Like if someone were to ask you that, what kind of advice would you give? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would definitely say go to embrace race. Yeah. Or yeah. Um, just whether, you know, we're, we're definitely, as you have, as you so, uh, beautifully put it at the, at the top of the hour, we definitely um, are creating space for people who are positioned uh, pretty differently, who, who sort of need, um, are early in their journey, or mm-hmm. as I saying, are, are at more on the um, receiving end of um, sort of racist systems, although everyone can um, also sort of be according to different identities, everyone can be, even people of color can be, um, can have, can engage in oppressive behavior, right, against other people of color, against people of varying identities. So that's, there's a lot for, it's not a black-white thing only, and there's a lot for all of us to learn. And and Andrew and I, truthfully, um, are on our own journey and journeys, too. Mm-hmm. You know, we've learned a lot during the race race, and um, we, the way race is always evolving, um, it, you sort of need a critical lens and the conversation that we're trying to bring to it to understand how it's evolving and to sort of raise kids who can see that too. Um, so, yeah, I, I would advise that, and I would, I would, um, if, are you asking about people with white identities in particular or yeah um, I mean that's kind of like my next question too is to how to how to get white people more comfortable enough to talk about race because it can definitely be intimidating at times I I want to make sure that I'm referring to every race gender religion correctly and sometimes like that like guilt could come through or something could kind of make it more paralyzing in the sense like it's hard to break past from that so so yeah, like I guess people more with that white identity um, to talk about it more and to kind of get get into educating themselves too, like through self education. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, they that's another great reason to start with embrace races. They can kind of listen in, right? Right. Um, without participating, if, if they're afraid to participate, but they should, you know, get past that at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a lot in what you just said about, um, you know, the way talk of race gets shut down, mm-hmm. and it really does. Yeah. You say the wrong thing. Um, and so I think part of what we're trying to do is create an environment where you're not out of the, you're not ostracized because you said the wrong thing. Right. You know, if you're sort of on security, um, that we're all, uh, learning, mm-hmm. you know, about each other, and, um, yeah, and just to create an environment in which people understand that Andrew and I, I are, for example, not above committing microaggressions, you know, right. um, so, for example, or other things, so what we have to do is work on it, or else, um, you know, if you don't work on these things, but some of which work unconsciously if, you, if you're not thinking about them and not naming them then you really can't counter them so that's the problem um i really like i mean you i'm sure you 
read it or heard about it. Um, I really like White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo as sort of a book to start with. Um, there's Standing Up for Racial Justice is a an organization volunteers of white people organizing white people uh, to stand up for racial justice. So there are chapters everywhere. You could start a chapter. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. No, they are great. Um, uh, we really... There's also a book we had a woman on named um, Maggie Hagerman and Erin Winkler. They did a webinar for us called How Children Learn About Race. And Maggie in particular, uh, since we're talking about, you asked about white kids, um, wrote a book about white kids. And it, it, you probably also heard of it because it was, uh, you know, she sort of made the, the rounds of talks and probably still is because it was a successful book. Um, let me see what it's called. Called, hold on a second. Yeah, so Margaret Hagerman, the book is called uh, White Kids, Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. Okay. So that's a really good one. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think Robin would be a good place to start. And in terms of starting with kids, I think people really um, abdicate, you know, on their responsibility of, of talking and modeling for kids, but particularly the, the talking thing because they don't want to get it wrong. And the truth is that you can get lots of books lot with lots of diverse characters doing cool things, and there are lots of lists that are helpful, and Race Race has those too. And what you can really do is ask the kids, what they think, show them, notice things with them, notice skin color, um, notice which, who in the book has skin color that's like mommy's, that's like your friends, that's like you. Mm-hmm. Um, just really starting with where the kid is mm-hmm. and because um, they're noticing and what you don't want to do is shush them so that they think they're not supposed to talk about it. You want to, like with all things, if you want to be really people-centered and child-centered, you have to get on the floor and ask them what they notice, what they think, and Mm -hmm. tell them what you notice, and that'll spur the conversation. Do you have any more, Andrew? Of course, but are you you getting what you need, Natalie? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's really important what you're saying, Melissa, and, and it kind of reminds me of I saw on your Raising Equity worksheet on your website about how developing an equity mindset takes a lot of time. It's like building a muscle and um, it could take up to a generation of 25 years to do that. So it's that practice where even somebody who has um, held, you know, a marginalized identity or lived experiences of inequity, they might still not know how to talk about it. So it's important for for all people to kind of start talking about it now. And that's a big focus of my blog is that work that we can be doing now. So when the time comes to be having those conversations with our kids, we're in a much more, like more confident, I guess, place to talk about them in a way that you know that you're helping your kid develop that equity mindset. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the benefits or one of the motivators can be for folks who haven't, um, don't have a lot of experience talking mm-hmm. through these issues is just thinking about your kids and gosh, do you want them to be as pained in these conversations as you are <laughs> yeah. and as avoidant? You no, know? like let's raise a generation that doesn't feel that. Right. Exactly. Now, I want to give one specific um, um, sort of information source. Uh, 
Natalie, we we are preparing a 21 day challenge on um, you know how to nurture resilience in kids of color, mm-hmm. and the idea of a 21 day challenge, and it is about you know you just refer to habit building, um, comes from you know, Debbie Irving, uh, Eddie Moore. Um, and I'm forgetting the name of a third person, but they came up with this 21-day racial justice challenge, and their resources are still up. So, you know, if you were literally going to uh, do, you know, Google 21-day challenge and Debbie Irving, mm-hmm. I-R-V-I-N-G, um, you, you'll come to their site and their original challenge, which has, you know, a lot of not only a lot of resources, things to read, to watch, to listen to, you know, uh, to notice, as they say, um, but also links to other groups that mm-hmm. have done sort of spin-off 21-day challenges. Um, and Food Systems New England, uh, in particular, have done a really excellent one, and they have a whole page full of links to resources. Um and, and, you know, broadly speaking, the only thing that this just sort of pulls out the couple of threads that went through what Melissa said and what you said, I think exposure, right? Mm-hmm. So expose yourself to, you know, whether it's reading, right, et cetera, and conversation. Yeah. Um, I think uh, we can read, we can, you know, do all those things, but I think you actually have to talk about it, you know? You have to, that, that's... For most of us, I think that's when we consolidate what we've learned and, and even come to understand what we think about a thing. Right. Is by actually talking about it, chewing on it, bouncing it off against our own experience, etc. Yeah, I mean, that kind of reminds me of this idea that as I start to get closer and closer to, to you know, wanting kids, I or having kids, I, I want kids, but <laughs> having them actually, um, is I've started to think a lot about the community that I have and the community I will have around my children. Um, so the people who will be caring for them and teaching them about the world, you know, in the, in the ways I can't. And so I, I want to avoid this homogenous community where everyone kind of feels the same about politics and we like all lead similar lifestyles. But in terms of the core values when it comes to racial inclusion, I really want to avoid people who are, you know, racist. And it's hard to, I think, avoid that in total. But, like, it's it just got me thinking, you know, where conversations like this in your community now are so important to start having. So then when that time comes that your kid is around, it's like you and those people close to you have already kind of having have been having these discussions. Um, you know, like even, for example, having a racist relative – you know, growing up or even as an adult now, I might just want to avoid them or, you know, kind of brush them off, whatever. They're just that racist relative I've always had. But now what I'm starting to put in the context of them being around my future children, I am more inclined to speak out and to kind of set them straight or to like have those conversations with them. Um, So it really does um, make me think about that. But um, what would your advice be to kind of start those conversations? Well, you know, we have um, some tip sheets uh, that I think give some nice starting points. So certainly, you know, you start early, mm-hmm. um, try to make it routine. You know, a lot of people get really worked up about the quote-unquote the conversation, which then, then it becomes too heavy, right? Too mm-hmm. high risk. Uh, 
Right. Because he gets, you know, all or nothing with this one conversation. It really has to be a routine conversation, ongoing conversation, right? One you revisit again and again. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing is to really listen to your child. Uh, when your child uh, comes along and starts expressing himself, herself, verbally, non-verbally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as Melissa said, uh, we adults tend to, especially white adults, frankly, tend to shush children, right? When there's any mention of race, you know, any observation, you know, look at that, you know, look at that man's skin, you know, is his skin dirty, you know, whatever it may be. Children are trying to make sense, right? Right. Um this is a good thing. This is what they should be doing. Right. Sometimes, of course, children will say things that aren't, you know, that, yeah, they, they aren't uh, framing their observations in the way we love. Right. But they're trying to make the best that they can. That's a good thing. Um, they will notice, right? They will notice. Like, people in general are amazing at pattern recognition, as we say. We recognize patterns of things. Certainly when the kid is in preschool, right, and, and thereafter, like who uh, who is in the advanced courses, right? And who's taking the remedial class and who's being sent to the principal's office and who's in which clubs and playing which sports versus other clubs and other sports. So, you know, who lives in what neighborhood um, mm-hmm. and, and who doesn't. So all those sorts of things. Um, you know, we had a, have a friend locally who noticed that, you know, she, her son goes to the public schools, which are quite diverse by race and class, mm-hmm. but said, gosh, you know, on the weekends and especially in the summer, completely different, right? Because parents have different means for sending their kids to different camp or not to camp. So kids notice, but the critical thing is what sense do they make of that, right? How do they explain those things that they see? Right. Um, and that's parents, yeah, so encourage your kid to talk and listen for what your kid has to say. You know, bring it up when it's, when it's um, you know, when it's clearly a salient issue and start to get at not only what they notice, but start to talk about why things may be this way. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know, if one doesn't know, that's fine. Do some research on it. Yeah. Like, oh, that's a good question. Why is it only black or brown or Asian or white or whatever people in this neighborhood? That's an interesting question I bet we can find some kind of answer online mm-hmm. and then actually try to do that. But have the conversation and keep it going. Right. I, I was, Natalie, I mean, you're saying... I love that you're, again, much respect for actually thinking about this far in advance, you know, because it really does, uh, what's absolutely true, and you said this about, because you you so want to be a parent that you already know and are looking, you're you're a planner, Natalie, you're a planner, (laughs) and I think that what we've found, and we're maybe less planny, and um that when people do have kids, for most people it's when they do have kids, but for you it's happening before you have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, most people need to have kids in order to go, oh, oh my gosh, what do I, you know, to just take the blinders off again and realize, oh gosh, this is exactly, like I'm repeating something, mm-hmm. you know, that I right. was trained to do, and um, how do I break the cycle? So that just like for us that happened, and there are a lot of people you'll find in, in your conversations I'm sure that are much more open to that kind of stuff once they have kids and, and especially once their kids are talking and they right. think that, just, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, but in terms of, but in terms of what you can do immediately, I mean, I think that you can 
whoever the friends are that you get together with already, you mm-hmm. know, which we tend to be in pretty um, segregated groups, but still, that's still a great place to start mm-hmm. and and have the conversation about maybe read uh, read White Fragility or mm-hmm. have the conversation about um, who's here and who's not here, who's missing and why. Right. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of structural reasons, right? And there's but there's sort of um, just thinking thinking that way about um, what's missing, you know, and bringing it up and thinking about how you can get involved in your community. Um, I think getting folks who are not parents to think about schools and school composition is really important. So things like universal pre-K, which, uh, I don't know, in LA you probably don't have, right? But um, I don't think so. But things like that really make a huge difference like a lot of kids start kindergarten and they're way behind you know other kids if they haven't had the opportunities I remember when I first told my kids that not everyone gets you know good preschool education which they did get Mm -hmm. you know and 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 kids end up thinking they're smart but actually they just got a good preschool education (laughs) right and my daughter's jaw dropped like oh you know because she clearly thought she was really smart yeah. <laughs> um, so pushing for policy stuff like that, um, integrated schools, that's the thing that we hear a lot in progressive communities is, you know, integration is really important to me, um, that will, uh, typically a white parent will say, right? It's really important to me. But then when you talk about the other things that are important, integration sort of falls to number three or four or five, right? So right. Um, this idea of, what kind of citizen are you raising rather than how do I hoard opportunity, you know, is kind of the direction to go in because especially people um, of many privileges, mm-hmm. um, are, they're, they're going to be fine anyway. You know, yeah. you don't have to worry about they didn't, they went to, you know, a C rated uh, camp or school versus, you know, the A rated because, you know, you have to ask questions like, why is it rated that way, right? And, right. Uh, what are the primary tools, of it, you know, and what are the things, uh, what's the education they're getting, um, like the hidden education, you know, in uh, all kinds of schools, there's a hidden education that's sort of not um, talked about or not valued, and being in a diverse environment um, where kids have universal pre-K, especially where, where there's some kind of people can meet as equal, mm-hmm. um, is really a huge education mm-hmm. in, uh, you know, that'll help your kid forever. And it's not something that people write about on great schools, you know? Yeah. I mean, I definitely was fortunate enough to go to a public elementary school that was super diverse. And my group of friends growing up, starting from kindergarten, were very diverse. And, and while I ended up going to a less diverse private middle school and high school, um, I still had that kind of, um, base or, or, you know, to build off of that, that I was exposed to from such a young age. And, and I, and I've always really appreciated that. And I've always thought that I'm going to do my best to make sure my kids have that same experience from a young age. Um, So that kind of brings me to my next question about how you guys, while, you know, talking to your kids about race in general, um, how are you guys teaching your children about their own racial identities? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, we, yeah, 
we talk about it quite a bit in there. The, the way that, you know, so I'm a biracial person who gets um, misidentified or presents as white or, mm-hmm. you know, whole, like there's sort of a real gamut of things that happen. And what having someone like that in your family um, does is it really kind of explodes the idea that race makes any sense at all, right? Yep. So uh, we talk, actually talk about... Um, uh, we talk about how race makes no sense, and we talk about how there's the way people see you, your social sort of identity, your racial identity, and there's there's how you identify yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that those those sometimes are the same, and in our kids, they're generally the same for mm-hmm. them. They're identified as black, biracial, and they identify they sort of uh, change. Um, how they identify to sometimes it's black, sometimes it's biracial, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, they're pretty comfortable doing that. And they actually have a cohort of kids that's pretty diverse that's comfortable doing that as well. So there's support for that here, um, even in their school cohort, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how we talk about it. And we talk about, you know, what it means and what it doesn't mean, you know, that, that there's as Andrew was saying, this correlate, you know, this, that this difference is really about where we come from and, you know, being a more melanated people and, and all of that and those rich histories. Um, but then there's also, when you come here, there's, there's other things that are accrued to, um, to race, to skin color. I, I don't use the word accrued though. Um, and we, yeah, we talked to them about those things as well and about racial hierarchy mm-hmm. um you know these ideas that you know not these ideas that people don't all actively act on but we all are kind of swimming in them in our culture um so it's sort of a bias that um we hold and that we have to kind of name and counter by doing things like um making sure we're seeing a lot of images of diverse folks by um, having dolls of color, you know, Um, by uh, looking for movies or hanging out with people um, at least some of the time that we share these identities with. And and, and part of the conversation is definitely, like, we're going upstream a little bit, kids, because of just how mass cultural production you know, has worked and continues to work that we're, we're still uh, not seeing the representation of lots of different folks that we should be seeing. So um, so that can trick your brain into, that's the way I tell them about that, can trick your brain into thinking what you see more of in those spaces, you know, on TV is better. Right. Um, we can trick our brains back, you know, to, to correct and so it's a very, um, as Andrew said, it's really an ongoing conversation because right. um, they're growing up, because they understand things at different levels. And um, we, of course, get after a conversation that they haven't understood it, you know, if they sort of come back and say something was totally um, twisted. So it's important to talk about it and keep checking in yeah. and... Uh, even allow them to, um, as with other things, to challenge, you know, to challenge your views and bring in what they're learning. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, um, I, I read the audio transcript of your conversation with um, 
child psychologist Dr. Allison Briscoe Smith, um, parenting in the age yeah. of Trump. So that reminds me of like yeah. what you're saying, how I've always been really interested in child development and, you know, seeing parents, um, when I would go abroad, especially to certain countries, you can see how parents might not fully understand why their child is not responding the way they want them to or understanding something. And it's true. It's like purely because of their brain development and their age. And so kind of figuring out how, how and when to have the right conversations about different things. And of course, you know, observing your child, reacting to your child is a great way to base those conversations. But, um, what were your kind of main takeaways from that parenting in the age of Trump conversation specifically about those different age groups? Right. Well, you know, I mean, I honestly don't remember. Allison is, is amazing and wonderful. And, um, if you want to talk more about this sort of thing, she'd be a great person to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember, honestly, specifically what she said. Certainly there are, you know, uh, there are different things that tend to be happening at certain times in children's brains. Right. Um, but more generally, you know, I think that you, you know, certainly as, as the parent, um, typically you know where your kid is, right? Mm-hmm. You know what kind of conversation your your child can process um and you know the struggle is often i mean i actually take a pretty straightforward approach right so i tend to um i I leave out details that i think um yeah are too difficult Mm -hmm. right for for the for the kid either because you know it's sort of requires too much backstory and you know the 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 attention span it's probably not long enough for the story you Mm -hmm. feel you need to tell Mm -hmm. um and then there are of course personality differences right they're just have different makeups emotional makeups so yeah you know one of our adults now is uh tends to be super worried about things and she gets she's pretty anxious and she might lose sleep or not you know not be able to go to sleep so we're less likely to tell her details than with the other um, you know, that needs to be part of it. Uh, the last thing I want to say, though, so I, I guess I want to say, you know, challenge yourself. Don't, don't use this as an excuse to not talk to your child. Challenge your, yourself to have the conversation with the child, but also acknowledge that, you know, as Melissa likes to say, you are the expert in your child, mm-hmm. right? It's so what you, say, told me. Yeah. what you I say know. and what you don't say, you know, you know best to do that, but do say something. Try to have the conversation and the last thing I want to say is, I do think a lot of parents, um, you know, we tell ourselves that kids are racial innocents, right? Mm-hmm. That they're super naive, and that if you were just to broach the subject of race, that they would be crushed and destroyed and, you know, be on the psychologist's couch in 10 years, right? <laughs> um, which is just, I think kids are far less fragile and that's, than we often suppose and that we often project on them. Right. Yeah. We project our own comfort right. with the conversation. And there are any number of anecdotes we could tell you, both in the race space and other sort of ident- social identity conversations where the kids are totally with it, right? They wrap their minds around, you know, what it means to have a trans identity or what it means to be gay or what it means to be whatever. Mm-hmm. Easily. Easily. They have no issue. Like, oh, okay. Right. We're the one 
who often don't want to have the conversation because we're not comfortable. Right, because kids don't have those preconceived notions of anything. They kind of understand it however you kind of explain it to them, right? So... Yeah, we had just a, I'll give you just one small example. You know, we had a conversation, we've sort of had this ongoing conversation about the use of they as a singular, right, to refer to uh, folks who don't identify as, as he or she. Yeah. Um, well, our girls wrap their minds around, right, our girls, each, each of them says they, no problem, right? Right. And they, them, refer to a, a singular person. We're the ones who have trouble doing that. Right. Right. And part because, you know, we have many, many years of not prefer not using they with individuals, but I do think right. part of it is conceptual, right? That we have a hard time thinking of someone we want to identify as a she mm-hmm. and saying they. Right. Whereas our eight year olds like, oh, you know, yeah. is they. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. It's pretty amazing, yeah, for I, sure. Yeah, I think that just underline that Allison is definitely the one who Dr. Allison Briscoe said who gave, because people can be pretty um, dogmatic, but, you know, you sort of have to do it this way, by five, talk to them about this. Right. And she, and of course, parents can use uh, my kid wasn't ready, you know, as an excuse as well. Um, but she could sort of hear the difference, you know, and and could say, you got to get your kid to sleep. You know, they don't, they, uh, they can't be up all night worrying about if Trump is president. You know, what can you say to get them to sleep? So, right. so there's sort of a, um, a you-know-your-kid aspect of it. Um, and then there's this kind of, um, you know, Allison also just did say, you know, you don't have to be a child development expert, you know, to talk to your kids about this. And it, it kind of makes me think of, you know, recipes, like a baking recipe. You might want to weigh the ingredients, and it's very precise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but like a chili recipe, it's actually just a guideline, and you um, can throw in all sorts of things, and you might say, mm, I added too much of this, next time I'm going to do this other thing. You know, you can adjust, right? and that's kind of more what this is, but I think a lot of folks are so scared um, that, of being called a racist, that um, they want the, the baking recipe, when actually they're never going to get that. It's kind of, um, it's always going to be the chili recipe, or there's a great feature in the New York Times now called the unrecipe recipe, mm-hmm. where it really is ah, a little, ah, a little this, little that. You know yeah. what you have in your house, your family. You know, yeah. Um, and so that's kind of the comfort we need to have with just diving in. For sure, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Everyone always is always looking for that silver bullet, but it's it's really uh-huh. so individual and um, kind of taking what you know and the research that you want to do and the self education and then you know, of course, taking into consideration who your child is and, and all of that as well. Um, so just for the final three questions that I ask everybody on the podcast, um, the first one is what mantra or words do you guys like to live by? Uh, uh, we should look at these earlier. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my mantra. Um, well, that's not it's not a mantra I live by, but it's probably my favorite quote uh, discovered in the course of this embrace race work, and I've certainly used it uh, in that way. And it was, it's, um, you know, it's something like this. Um, we're so concerned about the adults' children. 
children will become that we forget there are people now. Right. Right? I love that. Yeah. I love that because, and yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not just about, you know, training kids to, you know, be agents in the world, to be people who do things, you know, when they're adults. Kids are, kids are doing amazing things right now. Yeah. Uh, and they're change agents. I don't even mean, you know, the, the, <laughs> the kid who wins prizes for, you know, whatever, Nobel Peace Prize or something. I mean, you know, when our girls are talking about dynamics in their friendship groups, mm-hmm. right? What are they bringing to the mix? Right. You know, are they speaking up to the friend who is being bullied by the other friend? Right. Um, that's really meaningful. Definitely. So that's, that's one I put out. Love that. Yeah, um, yeah. I um, when we hear that they're not speaking up, we say, "Come on, we're trying to raise a brave generation." You know, <laughs> um, there's a particular pressure on our kids. But I, I just remembered a a sort of mantra or saying that um, from my education days and being working in schools on equity, and one that I love and repeat in different contexts is um, "Get smart to do good." And that's kind of, um, you know, I feel like that's a good one with kids is sort of knowledge with a purpose, you know, like how can we do this? How can we do this differently? Um, Get smart to do good. That would be the mantra. I love that. That's great. Um, The next one is we all know it takes a village to raise kids. Um, like the saying goes, but what do you most value in your community? And I know we kind of talked about this, but of your friends and family and or family who are helping you raise your kids. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're um, really lucky to have such a diverse family, you know, and to have, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the grandparents that hail from, you know, three different countries, I guess, and even Andrew is an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's kind of, um, you know, that's been, I think, really difficult in some ways growing up, but also really useful in terms of the different, the eyes you have in different communities, you know, and the empathy that that builds. Um, I think that, I think that that's really lucky. I think that, um, uh, in terms of friends and other folks where we live, you know, we're just building, we're movement building and we collaborate and are friends with other people who just want to see things move and see um, everything as, uh, or a lot of social movements as interconnected, you know? Right. Um, so they help us, you know, get smarter to do better. Um, and, and they help our kids too. We've had some, um, they definitely model, you know, we want people that are modeling good things and doing good things and, um, they're a diverse group. Um, and we can trust, you know, if they're, and this has happened, if there's sort of a racial incident in, um, that happens when we're not there, we can, you know, trust them to step in and not gloss it over. So, um, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. No, the, um, most alluded to this with the talk about the, well, both the family and the friends, but yeah, our families and our friends are pretty diverse, um, racially, ethnically. Uh, and I think that actually is the single biggest 
thing that you can model for your child, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the first or the, the, the single biggest gift you can offer to your child if, if indeed you can offer it, which is diversity of friendships, right? Diversity of people you love and admire. Yeah. Um, you know, so quite apart from what you say to your kid, you know, uh, explicitly to sort of try to teach, what do they see? Do they see you inviting, you know, over a mix of people for dinner? Right. Right. If you're able to do that and, you know, talking, right. I guess who do you, who's revered and, or who's upheld, who's admired, right? Who's respected? Uh, those are the people, that's how you show, um, you know, that, yeah, these folks are fully human and, you know, worth, um, worth admiring is by actually doing it, I think. And and again, both in our families and in our friendship circle, um, you know, certainly not ideal, but uh, it's pretty good. And then as Melissa said too, I think our friends are um, definitely conscientious. You know, they're trying to do, they definitely have a view on sort of social good, you know, they definitely are trying to be involved, trying to, you know, even in Amherst, trying to change things for the better of a larger group of people, not just their own families. Right. Um, And that's, yeah, again, the the modeling is is hugely important. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, That's a really good point, too. Um, And then the last question is, what qualities do you admire most and hope to instill in your children or maybe you're already seeing your children kind of um act a certain way or be a certain way that you guys are really proud of is there anything specific yeah i mean to be honest i want my kids to be great singers (laughs) but that's just like living through them because i'm not but um and they're kind of get a little bit but um yeah we want them to be rich (laughs) and great singers um but I guess other than that, that might be first, just kidding, not kidding. Um, I would say being kind mm-hmm. um, and being, um, you know, being able to sort of appreciate all kinds of difference, you know, and see it, to see it, appreciate it, and, um, you know, kind of vibe off of it, like this is a good thing. Right. That would be... That would be it, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, probably nothing um, nothing that most parents don't want for their kids. For sure, the thing that, you know, when I think about times, I've been just really, really happy, uh, pleased, proud. You know, I think of our younger daughter who, um, you know, apparently the teacher tells us really has been that kid who, uh, who said hello, who tried to befriend the new kid. Oh, that's you nice, know? yeah. A new kid who comes from China uh, in the middle of the year, you know? Uh-huh. Really hard, right? Speaks uh-huh. very little English. New place, new culture, new everything. Second grade, first grade last year. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine how hard that is? And yes, to have, you know, our younger daughter really did go over and say, you know, hello and try to pull her into, you know, some activities that they were doing and try to communicate with her non-verbally for the most part, right? That's, That's wonderful. Amazing. And I guess yeah. the extension of that, is, yeah, for, for any child, whether it's because she's a newcomer or 
just because, yeah, she's being picked on. She's maybe ostracized a bit by the group. She doesn't feel that she belongs. Mm -hmm. You know, to have a child who will, even in the face of her friends, if as needed, will say, you know what, that's not okay. Right. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not only going to be quiet and not participate by, you know, sort of passively, but I'm actively not going to participate. I'm going to, you know, like say, that's, that certainly is what comes to me as something, um, and not to say that, you know, our girls are that even most of the time, um, but it is what I would love to see them, see yeah. them be and do. Yeah, definitely. I think that's really important. Well, thank you guys so much. This has been amazing. I've I've really loved our conversation and everything we were able to cover. I know this went a little over our time frame, but I really appreciate you guys taking the time to be on the podcast and to share your thoughts on these issues. Um, I'll continue to enjoy your Talking Race and Kids series, and I'll definitely share all of the links that we talked about from the books to the groups um, on the podcast notes as well. But if you guys would like to share where people can find you, um, I'd love that. Yeah, thank you so much, Natalie. We really, um, really enjoyed this and, again, really admire uh, this project. Looking forward to mother motherhood. Thank and, you. And uh, excited about our toys as well. Um, yeah, you can find us at embracerace.org if you want to follow sort of more of a daily, uh, have more of a daily interaction, community conversation, uh, follow us on Facebook. Uh, we're also on um Twitter and Instagram, but not as actively. Um, Natalie, I wonder if I can ask you just one question of yourself. Yeah. So this is, um, I'm always just curious. At the very beginning, you said, you know, you talked about all the identities that you held, right? So mm-hmm. white, having uh, to grow up white and from a wealthy family and Jewish and, you know, all the others. Mm-hmm. Um, and wondering about yeah, comfort about those intersections and all of that. And I just wonder, could you just say a little bit about, so where does, I mean, the, I'm sure you have many peers who would say many, if not, who hold many, if not all the same identities who are not so thoughtful, right, about mm-hmm. what it all means and how you want to be in the world. Uh, so is there, you know, one or two, three routes you could highlight about why this has become, you know, such a concern for you or such a, Well, I think, um, like I said, you know, I've always grown up with a really diverse group of friends, or or at least that's how I kind of started my life from a very young age. And the thing about my parents that was different, I, I guess they just, they never really talked to us about anything. So it was more of like, this is so normal for us to be around a diverse group of people, which I appreciated, of course, at a young age. But now I look back and I feel like I would have appreciated it more if we had talked more about it, right? And then I could have understood my identity a little bit better, but also appreciated those differences and not accepted them as like, they're just like me, we're just different races. It's Which I think is could be just as harmful, right? Because then you're not really embracing, as you guys like to say, those differences, which is important to recognize. So now I'm kind of afraid to to talk about certain things because I feel like I haven't had that practice or I haven't had that, um, you know, ability to find all the right words or um, just ways of talking about things. So 
I've, I'm kind of like thinking more about it now as like, you know, in this context of when I'm a mother, I don't want to pass on that. I do want to pass on that like comfort and the, and the fact that they, like my kids will hopefully accept all people and treat them all with compassion and kindness and all of that. Like my parents did just kind of through modeling, like you said, but they didn't take that extra step, which was talking about it. Um, and that's, what's important to me and, and kind of why I've started thinking about all of this in terms of like my own identity. Um, you know, I just kind of realize I have this privilege where it's like an afterthought because I'm this straight white person, like take a, take a, Side the fact that I'm a woman, because of course that comes with its own issues. Um, and with being Jewish, you know, I've dealt with very little anti-Semitism, if any. Um, so that has like, you know, I've, I was raised in a Jewish community for the most part. So, um, but like as a white person, I've realized that I, that comes with benefits. Um, that didn't really occur to me, honestly, until I was, um, like I remember driving and I just, and I was, and I saw a cop drive by and like that always, that was always fearful. And then when all of this, these police shootings started coming light in the news and things like that, I started to realize, wow, those cops are probably not even like looking twice at me, you know, and I'm just like driving down the street kind of going unnoticed. But to me, I feel like the cop is looking like directly at me and, and seeing if I'm like driving appropriately or whatever. And, and to realize that that probably wasn't the case and I was probably fine. Like that, that was kind of like a big aha moment for me. Um, when I was like, wow, I, I do have a lot of privilege in that sense, just because of the color of my skin. And, and now it's, it's kind of evolved. Sorry for such a long answer, but <laughs> it's evolved with my, um, my partner, Jose, he's Nicaraguan, but he's, he's white skinned. And so he kind of deals with this struggle as well, where how people perceive him from the outside, but then he'll speak in Spanish or, you know, he'll talk about his culture and his background. And, and to him, he strongly identifies with that. But, you know, in America, at least Hispanic people, Latino people are looked at as usually, um, indigenous or brown. And so it's, and it's, so it's become this interesting conversation for us. You know, when we have kids too, they're going to be white, most likely. I mean, considering we both are, they will be. So it's just this, there's like a lot of kind of ways I'm coming at this conversation, but it's, it's just become more and more important to me as I get closer to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. This, this, um, you know, one thing that we've touched on a bit over the course of our webinars, for example, but not nearly as much as I'd like to, is this issue of, you know, when there is um, tension at home, right, mm -hmm. or in the family. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned, you know, the, the sort of the relative, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, Thanksgiving and, you know, that uncle, right, or whatever it is. Yeah. But in a way, what's more interesting and more um, challenging, I think, for a lot of folks is, you know, sounds like it, it certainly won't be in your case, but, you know, if Jose had a very different sensibility about this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, or if, you know, parents, right, or grandparents uh, have a very different sensibility, that's when it gets really tough. And it's one of the things that, again, we don't, like, there, there can be, yeah, a whole bunch of challenges to doing this work, mm -hmm. right? To doing whether it's with your kid or just, you know, in your podcast, you know, it's, you know, what happens if people close to us, you know, are only passively supportive or actually unsupportive, mm -hmm. you know, that gets, that gets really tricky. Anyway, um, yeah. 
for Congratulations sure. on doing this wonderful work. <laughs> Thank you guys. And you guys too. Thank you. I'm so glad I stumbled across your website and I've told a few people about it. My cousin in particular, who's very interested in having these conversations with her son who's six now and her daughter's only about two, but she's, she's super excited about, about it. And, and yeah, well, thank you guys. Just thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. We look forward to, uh, to seeing more, to hearing your podcast and, um, everything else that you're doing. Thank you.